Good afternoon, and welcome to the Jewish Policy Center webinar with our guest, David Shanker of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. I am Shoshana Bryan, Senior Director of the JPC and your host. I'm really pleased to see that our sign-up list is growing, but more important that so many of you are coming back for your second, third, or 17th speaker. And at three o'clock, I wasn't sure how this would work, but thank you for signing up. Thank you for joining us. I know how much I have learned in this series um, about Iran and China, both internally and externally, about threats to Israel, U.S.-Israel security cooperation, Turkey's Islamist designs on Jerusalem, the short but very important war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, whether we can sustain our role as a superpower, and much, much more. I hope you're learning as well. And today we have somebody special. But as most of you know, before you get to hear from David Schenker, you get the JPC commercial. The Jewish Policy Center is a 501c3 organization providing perspectives and analysis of foreign and domestic issues by leading scholars, academics, and commentators. You can sign up for our articles published under the heading of Insight. You can see our magazine in Focus Quarterly, as well as our blog In Context, all on our website, jewishpolicycenter.org. And this being the last webinar of 2022, I would be remiss if I didn't say, you can also make a tax-deductible contribution to the JPC on our website at jewishpolicycenter.org. The JPC supports a strong American defense capability, U.S.-Israel security cooperation, and missile defense. We support the legitimacy and security of Israel against anyone who would deny them. As an organization that sits slightly to the right of center, the JPC advocates for small government, low taxes, free trade, fiscal responsibility, energy security, free speech, and intellectual diversity. And now we come to our guest, David Schenker. David served as Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs in the Trump administration. He was the principal Middle East advisor to the Secretary of State and the senior official overseeing the conduct of U.S. foreign policy uh, in a region that stretched from Morocco to Iran to Yemen, with responsibilities for 18 countries and the Palestinian Authority, and for a little while, Western Sahara, but then that went away. Through diplomacy and the effective allocation of resources and assistance, as well as through sanctions, David worked to promote human rights, deter terrorism, fight corruption, and push back against regional adversaries. In addition to developing and implementing the U.S. strategy on China in the region, we're going to talk about that, he worked to heal the Gulf Rift between uh, Qatar and neighboring states. We're going to talk about that too. Resolve conflicts between uh, in Yemen and Libya. Consolidate the Abraham Accords and counter malign Iranian influence in the Middle East. It wasn't a small job. And it wasn't his first time in government. From 2002 to 2006, he served the Office of Secretary of Defense as Levant Country Director the Pentagon's top policy aide on the Arab nations of the Levant. He advised the secretary and other senior leaders uh, about the military and political affairs of Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and the Palestinian territories, for which he was awarded the Secretary of Defense Medal for Exceptional Civilian Service in 2005. He has now returned to the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. His writings on Jordan, Lebanon, Hezbollah, and Egypt, among others, have appeared everywhere you think they ought to, uh, and more. And today we are pleased to have him with us. David Shanker, the floor is yours. Uh, 
Well, thank you, Shoshana. It's great to, to be with you again. Uh, can you hear me out there? Yep. Um, so yeah, it's great. Uh, lovely introduction. I'm glad. Uh, I think my mom was out there to hear that. So uh, <laughs> she might actually believe it. Um, anyway, I, I want to talk today about um, about Saudi Arabia. Um, I'm happy to take whatever questions you have on whatever area of the Middle East. So, but uh, in November, I was on a, a tour of the kingdom. I, I, I go fairly often. I went to Riyadh, the capital, Jeddah, uh, second largest city, um, uh, Damam, which is home to uh, Aramco. I went to Al-Ula, which is a, uh, a, a new uh, a discovery of a uh, Nabataean ruins uh, akin to, to Petra that the kingdom is trying to turn into a, a major tourist site, uh, and uh, an Abha, which is the largest city in the Asir region and to the south, uh, bordering with Yemen. Uh, which has been uh, hit by uh, dozens of hundreds of uh, rockets from by the Houthis, the Iranian-backed proxy militia uh, in Yemen. Um, when you think Abha, you can think of Sterot in, in Israel, sort of the main uh, target of um, Iranian-backed proxy terrorist militia missiles and, and rockets. Anyway, overall... It's a remarkably young population uh, in the kingdom, 40% uh, under 24. They're very optimistic, um, the youth. Uh, granted, I don't have a, a great sample size. I didn't go to dusty little villages uh, or smaller towns other than the ones I mentioned. Um, and so I, we'll talk about that a little bit later, about what that means and what people in these places um, might be thinking about uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, and and what's going on in the kingdom. But uh, by and large, um, the people that I met were uh, incredibly optimistic um, about what, what's called Vision 2030, uh, which is a sort of long-term development vision of a uh, uh, plan for Saudi Arabia that's being carried out uh, right now under the the, the watchful eye of uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Um, uh, you know, one of the things about the kingdom, um, unlike many places in the region, other than perhaps Israel and maybe United Arab Emirates, uh, kids that go abroad to college, they come home. They want to come home because they believe that things are happening in the kingdom. Um, you know, when we think of Saudi Arabia, we think about Jamal Khashoggi. We think about uh, this Washington Post um, uh, author who was, uh, was killed by the Saudi government. We think about the Saudi prosecution of the Yemen war, a lot of collateral damage, uh, innocent people getting killed. We think of uh, MBS ordering the kidnapping of former Lebanese Prime Minister Saad Hariri, who was kidnapped and, and tortured uh, uh, in Saudi Arabia. We think about the boycott, the economic and social boycott of Qatar led by Saudi Arabia. We think about the war with Canada. Uh, who wages war on Canada? And Saudi Arabia actually uh, because of a, a human rights tweet about Saudi Arabia from a ministry in, in Ottawa, uh, withdrew all their investments in Saudi Arabia and 40,000 medical students. Um, we think about sort of these kind of things. Um, but Saudis don't think about those things. Um, they think about these giga projects. You might have heard about Neom, a $500 billion city they're building in the northwest corner on the Red Sea of the kingdom. And they think about Diria Gate which is uh, this enormous city uh, neighborhood that they're building in downtown uh, right outside of uh, Riyadh that's going to be part of Riyadh, 
um, with a, a, a history museum of the kingdom, um, a history me- museum that doesn't have any reference to the Wahhabis, um, you know, being a, a new sort of uh, historical uh, revision of the kingdom. They think about Al-Ula, once again, this this town in, in the north with these ruins. They've got a concert hall called Maria or Mirror that is uh, the largest building made of glass mirrors in the world where Mariah Carey played a few months ago. They think about this seven flags that they're building outside of Riyadh. They think of this thing called the Boulevard, which is sort of a cross between Disneyland and Times Square, where men and women are out walking hand in hand, um, going out for um, uh, a coffee. Um, They think about Live Golf. They think about this new Saudi golf tournament. They think about the F1, the Formula One. There's all kinds of things that are going on in the kingdom. So why are kids, people optimistic? Because of social change, right? So when we think about Khashoggi, um, people think about the Saudiization of the workforce, that there are men and women who are working in restaurants together. They're not wearing hijab. You go to a restaurant, you're eating a great meal, and they serve you a mocktail. But you're thinking that in a year from now, you're going to be able to get a drink in Saudi Arabia. And I think they're right. You think about the end of the morality police, that there are no more people that are out there like in Iran beating men and women who are walking together who are not direct relatives. Um, You think about women driving, something that uh, Mohammed bin Salman changed in the kingdom, right? This is a recent development. You think about women not having to have a guardian, that they can leave the country without without the permission of their male relatives. Um, you think about, uh, and the Saudis think about um, that the head of the, the largest religious organization called the Muslim World League, a guy named Muhammad Al-Isa, um, how he came to Washington and visited the Holocaust Museum. He went to Auschwitz, he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post about how Arabs have to understand that the Holocaust happened, that this guy was appointed by Mohammed bin Salman to give the chief sermon during the Hajj. Right. I mean, this is a very different, um, very different kingdom. Right. Social. Um, There's also economic diversification. Right. Along with all these mega projects. So they think about this ambitious economic program called Vision 2030. um, And they're optimistic. Now, all this transformation projects, diversification costs money. It costs a lot of money. And because of that. Uh, the price of oil has to be somewhere between $70 and $80 a barrel at a minimum so they can pay for this without drawing down the sovereign wealth fund, which has a huge amount of money in it regardless. But that's one of the reasons why uh, in a few months back that uh, it was announced that OPEC would cut production by 2 million barrels per day. Um, they need uh, the price of oil to be constant um at 70 or 80 dollars a barrel which is about where it stands now um you might recall that the biden administration was furious about this decision they had they advertised that uh they they thought that the saudis had agreed to uh, uh to not make any cuts um and then when they learned of them they asked the saudis to delay this announcement until after the midterm elections so that uh, the democrats wouldn't be heard at the ballot box um but uh, there was a belief, I think, um, by many in um, in Washington that this was uh, motivated by a desire to hurt the Democrats, um, you know, during the midterms. 
Um, but the Saudis say no. The Saudis say that this was done um, purely for solid uh, and grounded economic reasons, which is that there is a decrease in demand. And as many of you know, um, there's a lot of talk about recession. Um, there have been these enormous lockdowns in China. Um, and with inflation high and less demand for oil, you want to keep supply reasonable. You also want to have some excess capacity should we actually need oil and not keep on producing uh, you know, more and more. Uh, the Saudis say in any event that the price of oil or the amount of oil supply on the market should not be determined by the U.S. election cycle, right? And if you look back, um, I have to remind everybody, I worked for the Trump administration. There was one point in the administration where President Trump um, called Saudi Arabia and demanded that Saudi Arabia raise the price of oil. My oil prices were too low. Now, this was a result of a fight between Saudi Arabia and Russia over what's called OPEC Plus. We can talk about that more later if you'd like to. Um, but the low price was driving all American fracking out of business, right? It was not making it economical. Um, and I was on a phone call with the Princess Rima, the Saudi ambassador in Washington, with a dozen senators and congressmen, and it was ruthless. Um, so... You know, now they're being told to increase production before they're being told to decrease production. Anyway, the bottom line is they say, the Saudis say that if oil prices go too low, like just say $40 a barrel, that it will disincentivize future investment in the energy sector, right? Who's going to go out and build a refinery at a couple $5 billion when President Biden says, hey, we're putting the oil business out of business, right? And you can't make any money out of it. In any event, I think we all can recognize that even as we want to diversify, go green, um, lower um, emissions, et cetera, uh, you know, make sure global warming doesn't get worse, we're going to have, we're going to be dependent on gas, oil for a couple more decades. Anyway, you cut it. Anyway, um, when this happened, uh, the price, uh, the, the drop, a cut in production. And by the way, the 2 million barrels per day isn't really 2 million barrels per day because OPEC wasn't running at full capacity anyway. They were producing 800,000 barrels less. So it's really a cut of about 1.2 million barrels a day. Um, when that happened, the Biden administration was furious. Um, but it turns out the Saudis were right. I mean, the oil prices and the prices at the at the pumps have gone down since that announcement. Um, but uh, the administration announced that it would do a policy review of the U.S. policy. And of course, many in Congress, uh, Senator Menendez included the, the head of the Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee, um, threatened to cut weapon sales to Saudi Arabia because of this. Um, and there have not been since then any senior level meetings between the United States and Saudi Arabia. There certainly weren't any when I was in Saudi um, uh, at that point. Um, so there's a crisis in U.S.-Saudi relations. And this crisis didn't start with the announcement, right? This The crisis started about two years ago when President Biden announced on the campaign trail and then be, as president that Mohammed bin Salman, who is likely to be the next, uh, the next king of Saudi Arabia, is a pariah and that there's no socially redeeming value in Saudi Arabia um, and the government uh, that is the palace uh, and 
the royal uh, palace led by uh, Mohammed bin Salman and his father, King Salman. Um, one has to wonder what we'd expect um, having a policy that seeks to peripheralize a guy who's going to be for 40 years at least the next king of Saudi Arabia, uh, unless something um, unpredicted happens. Um, in any event, President Biden did go to Jeddah uh, to fix that. Uh, that was in his intent, at least, to go and patch things up. You know, I know you. I said you're a pariah and that there's no social redeeming value in your regime. Um, however, uh, we need you and we want you to pump more gas. Um, well, lo and behold, um, the trip didn't go very well. Um, and uh, I'll tell you why, in my opinion. Um, my view is that, uh, you know, the administration, I think they're right to go. Um, but with so many other policy decisions, I think they were sort of Solomonic. Um, they sought to cut the baby in half, which is the president didn't really want to go and meet with Mohammed bin Salman and bury the hatchet, right? So he was asked whether he was going to go meet Mohammed bin Salman. He said, well, I'm going to have meetings in Saudi Arabia and Mohammed Salman will be in those meetings, not really going to meet him. And then the president gets out of the meeting. He says, well, Khashoggi, we talked about Khashoggi at the top of my list. The Saudi said, well, no, I didn't really talk about Khashoggi. President shook hands with King Salman. He shook hands with the foreign minister, but he only gave the fist bump to MBS, right? Only sort of half measures here along the way. And lo and behold, the Saudis didn't walk away with warm and fuzzies. Um, by the way, the same thing happened with Egypt, right? The president was under pressure to, to cut foreign assistance to Egypt because of their human rights record. As you recall, President Biden is the human rights president, uh, as he says. Um, and they went to cut the aid. And, you know, the, le the left of the party said, cut all the aid. And uh, cooler heads said, well, you can't cut all the aid. You know, it's an important peace partner. And, you know, we, we have flyovers. They, they're they're uh, we they're fighting terrorism in the sun. I can't do that. So the, the administration cut 300 million and they got beaten up by the Tom Malinowski's of the world uh, and the, the left wing of the party for not cutting at all. And the Egyptians were really furious about any of it being cut. So you don't really get the end result either way of what you want. So this is cutting cutting the baby in half. Anyway, that's my view of the Saudi trip. But all this, I think at the end of the day, the bigger picture is that there used to be this formula of bilateral relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia, which was oil for security, right? They gave us the oil. We provided the security umbrella. And I think increasingly, they're concerned that we're not quite there for the security. Um, we have a presence. It's not enough. We're not retaliating against Iran. We had this JP, JCPOA, this nuclear agreement. We were ready to do all the sanctions relief to get Iran back into the deal with their arch enemy, who which has surrounded them and fire, you know, providing at missiles to their proxies or firing them into Saudi Arabia and we're making up for them. Um, I think that, um, you know, you got this happening. And so this formula has changed slightly. The other thing is, you know, with MBS, with all the social transformation, with the diversification of the economy in the kingdom, this is an increasingly confident Saudi Arabia that is going to do things that we don't necessarily want them to do. Um, we are still partners, but they are no longer the junior partner that they were in this arrangement. Which brings me to, finally, um, the G visit. The last week, the president of China 
um, visited uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, had meetings, bilateral meetings with the Saudis, uh, meetings with the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council. Um, uh, there was a lot of consternation about that here, back here in Washington. They signed some 34 deals. Um, uh, Saudi has uh, contracted out uh, the Chinese to do these mega projects, some in Neom and elsewhere. Um, there's a concern about some of the technology that China will bring to bear. You know, increasingly these economic infrastructure projects also have um, technological and security implications. That is big data that emerges from it, uh, communication security. And so the more they do with China, the more difficult it is for us to be a security partner for them, to cooperate in a strategic way. And we saw that well, m- most recently, you know, a couple of years back with the United Arab Emirates, who has Huawei, a Chinese 5G system that the country operates on, um, that we can't sell them as we promised to the F-35, the Joint Strike Fighter fifth generation uh, fighter jet, um, because we promised to sell them this uh, with the Abraham Accords for signing on the peace with Israel, uh, because um, the the system, this uh, Joint Strike Fighter depends on operating on 5G networks. And so we would compromise uh, the integrity of the cutting edge military equipment in the United States if we sell it to a partner that is using Huawei. And increasingly, we're going to come to this sort of situation with our partners. And so nobody's telling China, nobody's telling Saudi Arabia or Israel, for that matter, um, to not do business with China. But it's what kind of business you do with China. Um, Once again, the United States these days doesn't really build ports anymore. So who are you going to hire? You can hire the Chinese. You can hire the Polish. We're not doing that work. We're not building cranes anymore. We're not building trains, generally speaking, right? Um, There are other countries who do, but China does it better, faster, cheaper. So unless we're going to come up with another alternative, and we don't really have an alternative for things like Huawei right now. We have a sort of a mix of Nokia and Ericsson, but it's not quite as good and it's a lot more expensive until we can come up with better alternatives, you can't just tell our allies don't do it. We have to remember that for Saudi Arabia and for the UAE, China is their largest trading partner, right? They are selling gas. But you know, who's our largest trading partner at the end of the day? If you go to Walmart, you're not going to find anything made in the USA. So I don't think we should have our hair on fire, uh, but we certainly should be clear-eyed and have to work more on communicating um, you know, what uh, what the guidelines are for how we can work with the United States and China. Uh, but this is the long-term strategic challenge for us, and it's playing out every day on the ground in the Middle East and most recently and most prominently in China. So, um, Shoshana, did I talk enough? Whenever you're ready, David, I've got questions. I'm ready. Okay, so... Let's start with that uh, last little bit, and then I'm going to go back to modernization. If the problem with China and Saudi Arabia or China and UAE is technology security, uh, we've also had that problem with Israel and China. And between Israel and the United States, there were some really seriously intense conversations. And I think we're much better off now uh, in relation-wise. Is it possible to have those kinds of serious conversations with Saudi Arabia and UAE at the same time that we appear to have a mixed bag policy toward both countries? 
Are they going to engage with us as seriously and as, as positively as, say, the Israelis did? Yeah, by the way, so I just came back. I was in Israel for four days last week speaking at a conference about Israel and China. Um, <laughs> so it's yeah. a big issue there. This was, a, yeah, I probably spent 25% of my time as Assistant Secretary working on uh, on issues related to China and the Middle East, right? This is a, you know, you talk about the pivot to Asia. You know, that's moving our troops, you know, many of our troops to Asia. But if you want to, if you want to push back on China, China's all over the world. You got to be everywhere and do it at every location, not just in Asia, right? So they are, they have a big presence in the Middle East, not a huge military presence, but a big presence. So um, Israel, I think, is finally starting to get it, that this is where the rubber hits the road. Um, Republicans and Democrats alike. Um, it wasn't always like that, as you know, Shoshana. I mean, Let's go back to you know the early 2000s. I was in the Pentagon. Israel sold uh, the a AWACS called the Falcon, an early you know aerial warning system um, to China, and they had the United States forced them to break the contract. They had to pay a 300 million dollar fee to China. Um, then they sold the Harpy uh, killer drones to China, uh, which changed the cross strait balance, made it very hard, more difficult for us to defend Taiwan. Then they sold apparently the plans to the for the Levee to China, and now is the model for their their top you know their their cutting edge fighter jet the the A ten. I mean, it goes on and on. And at one point, the United States made persona non grata during the Bush administration. The director general, the number two person in the Israeli Ministry of Defense, right, he said you can't come to the United States anymore. You're not welcome in the Pentagon because of what you're doing with China. So. Now Israel gets it, right? They've got to, they've still got to figure something out, but I think they, they get it. They're, they're passing laws and they're about uh, how to review sales of technology companies, et cetera. They're not doing any military stuff. All this is very good. We've had a lot of these talks with, uh, with Saudi. We've had them with the United Arab Emirates. I'm sure they are ongoing. Um, but they're easier to, to have when you have a good relationship with these countries, They're, it's very sensitive discussions to have. And if you're basically not on talking terms at all with Saudi Arabia, I mean, things are so bad that the Biden administration, get this, they canceled right, exercises and talks between all the Arab countries and Israel to talk about countering Iran with cooperative missile defense. Right, CENTCOM canceled these talks because you know Saudi couldn't get invited to them because the United States was so upset about the uh, this cutting of the uh, the oil production. This is counterproductive, right? It's not in our interest, not in the interest of our our security architecture in the Middle East. Um, we shouldn't be cutting off our nose to spite our our face. But we got to get back to having good relations with these countries so that they don't hedge or that they hedge less, right? They're independent countries. They're going to trade with China. You know, can they find, can we find a motive of Vendi? I think we can. I had a meeting with that director general shortly after he was told he couldn't come to the United States. He was not a happy fellow. But it is proof that if the United States has policies and we talk about them and we engage on those issues, um, there's room for finding the common ground. And you would hope that we would do that with Saudis and UAE. Yeah. So you started with uh, modernization efforts. And I'm gonna lump together three questions here about three different aspects. Uh, first of all, the 
listener says, uh, we don't hear as much about the Wahhabis as we used to. You've alluded to the fact that they have a museum now that doesn't have Wahhabis in them. What's their it's current? A museum, it's a museum about the origins of Saudi Arabia. Without the Wahhabis. It, right, well, that sort of answers totally, that question. It totally eliminates any reference. It excises it from the history books. But two others. Yeah. Question, is there a parallel with the Shah of Iran's white revolution that accelerated urbanization, destabilized Iranian society, and at least indirectly undermined the Shah himself? Also, is there a parallel with China, um, the government-subsidized real estate boom that has left numerous debt-ridden, half-occupied cities around the country? The downsides of those two modernization efforts should probably be a warning to Saudi Arabia. How's it working? Um, well, so far, so good. Um, so first on the Wahhabis, like I said, you don't have the morality police anymore. I think the kingdom was pretty smart about how they got rid of these guys. I think they're still on the payroll, but they don't work. And so, you know, it's not like uh, when Paul Bremer dismissed the Iraqi army and a million people went home with AK-47s. Um, you know, you don't have a whole bunch of Islamist, um, you know, bitter, poor, you know, uh, people that can be weaponized against the population. Um about the white revolution, I'm not seeing increased urbanization. Now, there are, like I, I said at the beginning, the top of the conversation that you have in Saudi Arabia, you know, all these towns, cities, there's 25, 28 million people that live, you know, that live in the kingdom. And I haven't been out to places like Bureda or Taiz or, or other places on the periphery um, and don't know whether these people are happy about the social change. Um, or about the end of the morality police, or about the fact that women um, uh, have you know a lot more rights than they did under law um, in the kingdom. Um, I don't know how that's playing in the hinterlands, and I hope the U.S. embassy and consulate are sending you know people out to report on this um, throughout Saudi Arabia. I know that people get can get around in the kingdom. There's not limitations like we have in China like we have, you know, elsewhere uh, in the world. So people can get out. I hope they are. Um, uh, so I don't know if there's a parallel here. I don't see um, this enormous urbanization thing. Uh, but so far what I see is, and I don't and I don't know if there's a real great distribution of the good of the goodies here, right? I know that they're doing these mega projects in certain areas. I don't know if the wealth is being spread and if everyone is is feeling um, you know, these developments, certainly in Neom, this, you know, this enormous new city they're building in uh smart city, modern city, uh, where they say that they're, that they've got these canals where you can actually swim to work. Um, you know, uh, craziness. They're going to put a, a, a fast a train line there. There's not going to be any cars. Um, uh, you know, there were people that were living there, right. Who didn't want to sell their land you know, to the eminent domain to be bought out or they weren't being paid enough. And some people got killed. The government killed people. They arrested people. They killed people. Um, it's not settled, right? There are there are people that um, are displaced literally and figuratively by the changes that are that are going on. Um, as for uh, Evergrande, this, uh, the largest Chinese real estate company, you know, this is, you know, I like to say, China's not 10 feet tall, right? I mean, they look like they just went to, look, uh, you compare the rollout for G in uh, in Saudi Arabia, they had cannons, they fired cannons for this guy. Um, 
you know, I, I think they sent the governor of Riyadh, you know, some guy who's not even a, a royal to go meet President Biden, right? I mean, it, it's not comparable, the reception. On the other hand, you know, they got all these deals, et cetera. The visit went well. Um, on the other hand, uh, China's not doing great, right? Um, you know, you got Evergrande, which is basically their largest real estate company uh, that your the question referred to, that is going bankrupt. It looks like, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac back in 2008, when we, you know, had the global you know, recession, um, you know, the financial collapse. Um, they've got a demography problem. Their country, it's not because of the one child problem. Uh, Thing. They've ended that years ago. Um, people don't want to have so many babies because they want to be able to take care of their kids and feed them and send them to private schools, et cetera. Their country looks like Italy, right? It's collapsing on itself. A decade and a half from now, these guys aren't going to be able to fund you know, Social Security or their military. Um, COVID, right? The, the zero COVID pro- program has been a disaster. Not only has their growth you know, dropped from like six and a half percent to two percent, right? You've got all these people who are protesting for the first time since Tiananmen, right? They're out there and they're changing the policy. And oh, by the way, you know, not everybody's vaccinated. The Kovacs, the the the, the Chinese, the Sina Farm doesn't work very well. Old people aren't vaccinated. And guess what? You know, we had one out of every three hundred people die in the United States of COVID, right? One out of every three hundred. Um, China's going to have one every 300. Now, this doesn't make me happy to say, but they're not going to have a good year in 2023. So, you know, they're not uh, they're not doing so great either. So then you wonder what kind of impact that will have on the countries that China's made an effort with, specifically in the Gulf. I mean, it's it's all over. They have trouble now with Pakistan as well. But and this isn't really about China as much as it is about the Gulf states and specifically Saudi Arabia and Iran, are they going to see this and start to wonder where they're going with China? Well, uh, some countries should be doing that. I mean, a lot of these countries that are sort of neutral on um, on Russia, and uh, you know, I, uh, I hate to say it, but we almost have to put Israel into that category. Um, you know, in Ukraine, um, but uh, but these countries, uh, you know, they've sided with Russia, which has a failing economy and uh of course you know this great power can't even defeat ukraine in a war right um they're having enormous losses um china too you know um uh, whether you know i mean it's a problem right they, they don't seem to care about any of the human rights stuff the the sort of genocide that's being perpetrated against uyghurs that's not a problem they don't mind associating with this um but interestingly enough china china's sort of Outreach to uh, to Saudi Arabia and the effort being made has really wrangled uh, Iran because you looked at the statement that was made at the GCC. China sympathized with uh, Emirati territorial claims of three islands that were basically uh, uh, annexed by by Iran. Uh, they are occupied territory. Um, so they sided with UAE against Iran. Uh, they talked about uh, Gulf security, uh, recognized Iran as a problem in in in, uh, in, so ma- in as many words. Um, and the Chinese, pr- uh, the Iranians have protested, um, and uh, it's not a it's not a good look. The the Chinese had to send over their vice premier 
who's on his way out and he got sort of berated by the you know the Iranian uh by the Iranian president um so it's a hard balancing act for for China but whether they understand that China is not 10 feet tall no they're just in it for the money and uh you know frankly you know China is very happy to have us be the security umbrella in the Gulf right they are freeloaders we pay for the security and they get all the contracts we got to figure out a way to, to change that uh change that dynamic so this leads back to the Abraham Accords okay the Biden administration wasn't terribly enthusiastic about them in the beginning. And Biden policy was to revive the Iran nuclear deal, revive the two-state solution, upgrade the PA. And recently it's taken to warning the Netanyahu government about who it should have in its cabinet. Um, has this influenced the Gulf Arab states in terms of their relationship with the United States? And is it possible that if the U.S. backs away from the region or alienates people in the region to a large extent, including Israel, that the Gulf states might back away from Israel as well. Wasn't the regional security architecture based on U.S.-Israel cooperation in the region and then bringing Israel into the CENCOM regional security? Is it possible that some of these guys start to look elsewhere? Uh, there is no elsewhere. <laughs> right? okay. China cannot project power. What do we got? 11, 12 aircraft carriers. China has maybe one that's barely operational. Um, they never fought a war. They don't put troops in harm's way. Um, so it's very different. They don't have presence. They don't have bases um, in the region. If you that, that is, you don't count the ports um, that are sort of going to be dual use, I guess, someday, the string of pearls. Um, uh, but, yeah, I think it, it's it's symbolic. Right. There, you know, there, there shouldn't be space between Israel and the United States. Um, we should have good and continuing relationships with these Gulf states not only between CENTCOM and these these guys' militaries, right, but on the political echelon, so we can have these sort of important discussions. Um, we are the, I want to say, the, uh, uh, the irreplaceable ally, right? Nobody else can integrate, right, this regional air picture and potentially, hopefully, um, air defense systems other than the United States. That's our job. That's what we do. We have the confidence of the parties. At least the U.S. military does, if not the U.S. political echelon. Okay, right? so what happens if the political guys say, yeah, you think it's our job, but no, maybe it really isn't our job. Maybe we just don't want to do that job. We don't want to create this architecture with Israel and the Arabs, not until the Israelis settle with the Palestinians, not until the Arabs do. What happens if the political guys start to run this show in a serious way? Well, it'd be a disaster, right? I mean, I think, uh, you know, the the idea that we are judging Israel already, even before the government has been formed, right? I mean, you know, you have a government yet, and we're saying we're judging, you know, based on, yeah, okay, I think you can say, like, Hey, you know, it's too early to say, let's see, you know, we'll look what happens and we'll, you know, make up our minds about whether we like it or we don't like it. But, um, you know, this is their government, their democracy. Uh, but we, we will make our decision. They'll make their decisions. But it doesn't help anybody for us to have another self-inflicted wound in the region. Right. Things are not great. Right. Um, we don't want more instability. Right. We don't want to create more opportunities for Iranian to Iranian proxies to undermine stability in the region, to attack our partners. You saw 
Washington Post had just two weeks ago reported about how there are more Iranian plots to kidnap, capture, kill um, uh, U.S. partners in the region, U.S. personnel, American diplomats, um, you name it, you know, Israelis. Uh, this is not a situation where we want to walk away from our partners. We want to we want to get closer to our partners right now. You do. And I do. Let's hope they do. Um, speaking of Iran, what's your view? This is slightly off topic, but what's your view? How likely are the Iranian demonstrators to um, succeed in their quest to get rid of the government? And how can we help them? Well, listen, I mean, uh, I just had to give an Arabic newspaper my person of the year. And uh, I couldn't decide. You know, I said it's, you know, it's a tie between the Iranian woman and Zelensky. Right. Uh, it's enormous courage. Um, and, um, you know, you're already starting to see cracks. Right. You, you know, men, um, these are people's daughters. These are people's mothers. These are people. Um, and the regime is really feeling the pressure, I think, in a way that it didn't back in 2019. And it helps that the Biden administration recognized, as President Obama said, that they made the wrong call back in 2009 by backing the Iranian government against the Iranian people. Um, when they had the Green Revolution, uh, that was the wrong call. But it's not enough just to do rhetorical stuff here. Right? The Iranian regime is, uh, frankly, willing to kill, you know, to kill the people to stay in power. It's demonstrated a, a willingness to do so, something that, you know, the Shah eventually, you know, lost the will to do, which is why he's no longer in power. Um, and so, you know, I'm not saying... Uh, that uh, that we can do anything about this, intervene directly against this regime. I'm happy to see, finally, you know, the Europeans didn't care that the Iranians, along with their proxy Hezbollah and Russia, helped perpetrate what resembles a genocide in Syria, killing half a million people. You know, the, the, the Europeans didn't care that the Iranians were helping to slaughter Arabs. Um, but suddenly, when the Iranians are involved in slaughtering Europeans, um, you know, by providing drone killer drones and missile technology missiles to Russia, they're starting to sanction Russia. Um, I think that's useful. I think it's useful that the JCPOA ain't coming back, um, notwithstanding the administration's hopes, continued hope, um, because of this transfer of weapons and because of the slaughter of women on the ground. I think we have to do things to keep the internet open, to get the information out, to um, continue to do, um, you know, information ops, um, to uh, to get the Europeans to stay on board, and to do tougher sanctions, um, and you know, maybe snap back. I don't, I don't know. But these are are gross human rights abuses, and are you know, I don't think this is going to succeed in the near future in toppling the regime. You know, I hope it does, um, but it's going to take, I think, sadly, a, a great deal of time and, and suffering. Any chance that the military will uh, flip sides? I don't know about the military. I, I think that, you know, the, the Artish and all these you know, domestic security organizations are, you know, they are IRGC, et cetera, bringing people reportedly from Hezbollah, that all these people are so committed to regime survival um, that uh, I don't, you know, 
that they hang together or they hang separately. So we were talking before you and I about World Cup and about Qatar. Um, yeah, I don't, don't see the latest score, by the way. I know it was 1-0 when I got on. Oh, no, it's not 2-0. 2-0. 2-0 France? France, yep. Okay. Um, but that's not what we were talking about. There will be demonstrations if France wins and in in France and demonstrations if they if they lose. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And demonstrations maybe in Morocco if they lose. But but the question here is there has been an enormous, enormous Palestinian um, public push during the World Cup. And and it's understood that Qatar imported all these flags and T-shirts from China, by the way. I wonder if it was from Xinjiang. Giving them away and saying, you know, let's let's have all this publicity for the Palestinians. And Israelis report that they've been harassed by people on the ground in, in Qatar. Um, I think the Israelis were surprised at their treatment. I think you were not surprised. Talk to us about that. Well, first up, on the flags. I mean, this is typical Qatar ridiculousness, right? You can't wear a rainbow flag on your arm if you're supportive of the LGBTQ community. Uh, you'll get a you'll get a yellow card if you will go on the field with it. Um, you can't carry in an Iranian flag dating back to the days of the Shah. You will get beaten up, right? This is against Iran, but yet they're giving out these these Palestinian flags. Is not even competing in the in the World Cup. Um, c'est la vie. Um, there's a kind of sort of mischief. Um, there have there, much has been made about the treatment of Israeli journalists. Somehow that these journalists went to the World Cup and they expected to be embraced, this sort of long-standing saw that it was only the governments in these countries that had a problem with Israel, not the people. Um, and we saw, you know, very nice videos of Iranians embracing Israelis, you know, at the at the World Cup. Um, but many, you know, the Arab public, whether these were, were Lebanese, you know, and Israeli journalists will speak good Arabic to these guys and they'll say, hey, where are you from? And they'll say, Lebanon. He said, oh, um, that's great. We love Lebanese. And they'll say, where are you from? And they'll say Israel. And they'll say, no, there's no such thing as Israel. There's only Palestine. And sometimes some of these people are disappointed as if they don't know that, um, you know, the percentages of, of Arabs who support the Abraham Accords or, the, or are willing to accept the existence of Israel is still very small. I think the numbers, the Washington Institute's done some polling. I think it's the high point is like 30 percent of Emiratis, maybe 35 percent support the Abraham Accords. Right. It's downhill from there. Um, you know, some don't have problems with Jews, but, you know, some conflate Jews with Israel, et cetera. Um, but, yeah, the, the the welcome has not been warm. Um, and, you know, I was not surprised at all. I was sort of surprised at how surprised these journalists were. Yeah, but it is an opening, I suppose. Maybe the next time it won't be quite so bad. I don't know. So we're coming to the end of the program, mm-hmm. run out of time soon. So I'm going to put together three questions because um, they all go in the same direction. And because I like to get at the end of a program, an optimistic answer from our guests. So prepare yourself, David. Yeah. Uh, according to these three people, you've told us a lot about the problems of Saudi Arabia itself and the problems of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. First of all, uh, what would be realistic guidelines for a revised relationship? What would be some good things the United States could do? And how do we how do we move forward in a positive way? Well, 
listen, on Saudi, I think it's relatively easy um, just to start off with. We got to, you know, the, the whole sort of uh, the environmentals are terrible, right? Um, whether it's Congress or we can't control Congress, but the administration didn't seem to recognize the import of Saudi Arabia, right? It's all stuck on Khashoggi. You know, human rights in Saudi Arabia are not demonstrably worse than human rights in Egypt, right? In fact, I think they're probably better than Egypt. They're, they're trending in a better direction, right? They don't have freedoms in, uh, you know, or liberalization. It's not happening in either place, but it's becoming even more draconian in Egypt, right? Um, Saudi Arabia has not killed an American citizen, right? When I was in government, we had three wrongfully detained Americans in Egyptian custody. They killed one of them. And America said, we still give them, we still gave them $1.3 billion, right? Now, I, it's totally out of proportion, uh, the type of umbrage that we have taken with Saudi Arabia over Khashoggi. He wasn't an American citizen, right? It, it shouldn't happen to anybody. It's horrific. Um, but hey, um, you know, terrible things happen in the Middle East. And I'm really sorry about that. But that's one person and our national interest, and it wasn't even American, our national interest, I think, um, suggests and implies that we we have to we have to value the relationship more and look at some of the positive things they're doing, which is what I told you about, right? How they're not funding terrorism anymore. 15 out of the 19 hijackers were Saudi on 9-11. They're not funding madrasas anymore. This is, you know, they don't, they're cutting out the Wahhabis. They're they're doing tolerance. They're changing their textbooks. Why aren't we looking at that? Um, you know, why aren't we valuing that? Why aren't we making an investment in MBS? If this guy goes, right, all this progress may be reversed, right? Do we want to see Saudi Arabia go back to what Saudi Arabia was? Um, and so let's look at, you know, have a more holistic approach to the relationship and also recognize that even as we have changed in terms of the, the oil for security nature of the relationship, um, they too have changed. They are a more confident foreign policy of domestic actor, right? They're, they're going to be more vocal about their interests. And um, they are not the type of partner that they were. Uh, they have potential to be a better partner, right? Somebody who can go out and do things. You know, they did not prosecute the Yemen war particularly well. Um, but when was the last time an Arab country went to war for itself to defend itself against an Iranian proxy. I don't remember. I don't recall. Right? That's a good thing in my book. Right? So let's work with what we got here. We have a, a partner that views us as the partner of choice. They, they want to do more with us. They want training. They want to buy American equipment. All right, let's figure out a way to help them do that and embrace them. And, you know, maybe through uh, the transformation over time of this relationship, we can be able to work more closely with them, understanding that they're still going to have some sort of relationship with China. I'll take that. I mean, it's not the most optimistic answer I've ever heard, but it, but it goes there. You know, we have to work with what we've got. None of our allies in the region are perfect, and I mean none of them, and we're not either. So it seems to me practicality, if practicality rules, we're in pretty good shape. 100%. David Shanker, thank you for enlightening us about Saudi Arabia. Focus on, on things that we need to focus on, um, including giving us the World Cup score, which I, I think is important. And we appreciate it. We hope to have you back again. Thank That's you great. very much. Great to be with you.